السلام عليكم ورحمه الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له ونشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى اله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا اما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ان الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا ايها الذين امنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما صليت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما باركت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد respected listeners this is our fourth session of the study and commentary of the famous hadith of Heraclius from Sahih al-Bukhari. In the previous three weeks, we've read through the beginning part of the hadith and we've learnt that Abu Sufyan, who's the main narrator of this hadith, Abdullah ibn Abbas, radiyallahu anhuma, relates a hadith from Abu Sufyan, who said that during the truce of Hudaybiyah in the seventh year of Hijrah, taking advantage of this truce, he travelled up north to Sham as part of a trade caravan. He and approximately 30 others, or there were 30 of them. They were summoned by Heraclius, the Byzantine Roman emperor, who wanted to find out more about the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam of whom he was informed by the by his vassal and ally the Ghassanid king and also further to the information supplied by the Ghassanid king Heraclius had received a direct letter from Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam which he had sent with Dihyatul Kalbi radiyallahu anhu. <coughs> Dihyatul Kalbi had delivered this letter to Heraclius. He had received it. And then, having read the letter, Heraclius had sought to discover more information about the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. That's why he summoned Abu Sufyan. And I've covered all of this in detail. When this caravan was brought to the royal court in Jerusalem where Heraclius was at that particular time, Abu Sufyan and his colleagues were made to sit down and then he interrogated him about the Prophet ﷺ and his people's relationship with the Messenger of Allah. He asked ten questions and they were very precise, very selective. and well thought out. And this is where we had stopped. He had asked his tenth question. And then, having heard Abu Sufyan's answers, 
Heraclius now proceeded to review each question with its answer and then Heraclius would provide his own analysis of that answer, albeit briefly. So this is where we left off and we shall continue from here. وبالإسناد المتصل مني إلى الإمام البخاري رحمه الله قال and I relate with an uninterrupted continuous chain from me to Imam Bukhari rahimahullah who then says as part of the hadith فَقَالَ لِلْتَرْجُمَةً So he, Heraclius, said to the interpreter قُلْ لَهُ Say to him, meaning Abu Sufyan سَأَلْتُكَ عَنْ نَسَبِهِ I asked you about his lineage, his ancestry فَذَكَرْتَ أَنَّهُ فِيكُمْ ذُو نَسَبِ So you mentioned that he was one of great ancestry and lineage amongst you. فَكَذَلِكَ الرُّسُلِ So that's Abu Sufyan's answer. He says, I asked you about his lineage. So you said he is a man of great lineage and a great, line, a great bloodline amongst us. That was Abu Sufyan's answer. Now Heraclius provides his analysis. فَكَذَلِكَ الرُّسُلِ and so similarly are the messengers sent amongst the elite of their people. Now, Abu Heraclius, as I mentioned, he was a very highly intelligent, politically shrewd, courageous, militarily successful ruler. At the time he was questioning Abu Sufyan, he was at the height and zenith of his power. And he wasn't just a successful ruler, an emperor, or a great military general. He was very brave and courageous. He fought, he would fight in the battlefield. Along with all of of his impressive qualities, worldly, political, military Heraclius was also a very devout Christian and he had knowledge of the Christian scriptures. And he was well versed in Christian teachings. So this was the background to his questioning. He he knew the pattern of Allah in his prophets and messengers. He knew the traditions of the prophets. He knew the pattern of the relationship between the messengers of Allah and their peoples. And all of his questions were very precise. And they were couched in that knowledge, that background knowledge of the earlier prophets, messengers, peoples, nations and scriptures. And that's why his replies and his analysis was so accurate. So he says that I asked you about his lineage and you said he is a man of great lineage amongst you. So his, rep- his analysis was, then was فَكَذَلِكَ الرُّسُلُ تُبْعَثُ فِي نَسَبِ قَوْمِهَا And so in such a manner are the messengers sent amongst the elite of their people. And the meaning of elite is amongst the best lineage of their people. 
Allow me to expand on this. There were two things about the messengers of Allah, and Heraclius is referring to both of them. All of the messengers. One, that the messengers were of the nobility. They were of a noble background, of a noble bloodline and ancestry. They were of pure stock. And nobody ever looked down upon them because of their background, their lineage, their family, or their ancestry. It may not be the case today, but in many parts of the world it still is. And traditionally, almost universally, Family, kin, clan, one's bloodline, one's lineage and ancestry meant a lot. It gave a person a right to dignity, honour, titles. And the Quraysh were of a similar mindset. Virtually all the messengers of Allah, when they were sent to their people, their peoples were of a similar mindset. But... No messenger of Allah was ever frowned upon, looked down upon, or held in contempt because of his family or lineage. They may have been scorned because of their poverty. And this is why there is a distinction between wealth and between ancestry. For instance, Abu Talib. Abu Talib was the son of Abdul Muttalib. Abdul Muttalib was regarded as the Shaykh and the leader of the whole of the Quraysh in Mecca. He was the ruler, the uncrowned king of Mecca, the chief of the chiefs. That's Abdul Muttalib. When Abdul Muttalib passed away, he was the head of the Banu Hashim clan. And amongst all the clans, the Banu Hashim clan under his leadership was preeminent. He was the first amongst the equals. After his death, leadership of the Banu Hashim clan went to his son, Abu Talib. Abu Talib was still considered a great leader, wise, noble, honorable, a man of great dignity and standing. However, he did not enjoy the prestige or the power of his father. And the powerful leadership of Mecca then transferred from Banu Hashim at the death of Abdul Muttalib to the other clans, mainly Banu Makhzum. And from Banu Makhzum you had the father of Khalid ibn al-Walid, al-Walid ibn al-Mughirah. You had Abu Jahl. And you had other more very prominent members. So amongst all the clans, the most powerful at the time of Rasulullah wasallam's call to Islam was the Banu Makhzum clan, which had taken over from the Banu Hashim. One of the reasons was that Banu Hashim, under, after Abdul Muttalib, Banu Hashim, under the leadership of Abu Talib, it wasn't as wealthy as some of the other clans. And Abu Talib himself 
was somewhat impoverished. So much so that he had a large family. When the Prophet ﷺ moved in with him, he did not wish to be a burden to his uncle. And at a tender young age, the Prophet ﷺ began earning his own living. And as a child, at the age of 10, approximately, or maximum 12, Rasulullah would go out into the deserts beyond the city of Mecca and herd flocks of sheep. All day long he would leave in the morning and arrive at night. And there was a wisdom in that as well. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at that tender young age and in those formative years of being a teenager, Allah kept him away from the hustle bustle of city life. And also from the revelry and festivity of the young at night. And the Prophet ﷺ would spend the whole day in peace, in solitude, in the remembrance of Allah, in with nature, with an open and clear mind. And he would return extremely tired at night and retire. And the next morning he would return to the desert. So... Anis, the Prophet ﷺ himself says, مَا مِن نَبِيٍّ إِلَّا وَقَدْ رَعَ الْغَنَمْ There is no messenger, no prophet of Allah, except that he has herded flocks of sheep. Every prophet has been a shepherd. And there is great wisdom in that. So this showed the poverty of Abu Talib. Yet despite being extremely poor, well not extremely, despite being poor, he was regarded as a noble. So there is a distinction between wealth and nobility. A, per- a person can be extremely wealthy, but wealth does not make a person noble and dignified. And a person can be po- and can be poor, but they are they can still maintain a certain dignity and hold a certain position, especially if they come from good ancestry, good blood, which means good stock, good training, a good mind. Wisdom and understanding. So, this is the first point of the two that I wish to address about the messengers of Allah. One, they always came from pure stock, from the best of their people, the elite of their people. Even though they may have been poor, because we draw a distinction between poverty and nobility. Sorry, wealth and nobility. And therefore, none of the messengers were ever taunted or suffered jibes, or were frowned upon or held in contempt because of their family, their lineage, and their ancestry. Another thing is that having come from, this is a second thing, having come from prominent families, all the people of these messengers, والسلام, they knew the prophets of Allah, they knew their families, they knew their parents, their grandparents, their lineage, their clan, kin, tribe. They were a known people. And being a known people, they grew up amongst their own people. Everyone knew them. They knew their background, their history, their childhood. And this was very important. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ensured this so that the, these same prophets of Allah when they would invite their people to the religion of Allah and to the revelation that they had received, 
people may disagree with the revelation. People may rebel against the revelation. But they would not be justified in doubting the veracity, the integrity, the honesty, or the character of any of these messengers of Allah. Because they were known to them. And they knew their history, their background. There was nothing suspicious about them. And this was the history of all the prophets of Allah alayhi salatu Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says repeatedly in the Qur'an, for instance, وَإِلَى مَدْيَنَ أَخَاهُمْ شُعِيبًا قَالَ يَا قَوْمِ اعْبُدُ اللَّهِ مَا لَكُمْ مِنْ إِلَٰهٍ غَيْرُهِ وَإِلَى عَادٍ أَخَاهُمْ هُودًا قَالَ يَا قَوْمِ اعْبُدُ اللَّهِ مَا لَكُمْ مِنْ إِلَٰهٍ غَيْرُهِ وَإِلَى ثَمُودَ أَخَاهُمْ صَالِحًا قَالَ يَا قَوْمِ اعْبُدُ اللَّهِ مَا لَكُمْ مِنْ إِلَٰهٍ غَيْرُهِ All of these prophets exactly the same words. وَإِلَى عَادٍ أَخَاهُمْ هُودًا And to the people of Ad, we sent their brother, Hud. وَإِلَى ثَمُودَ أَخَاهُمْ صَالِحًا And to the people of Thamud, we sent their brother, Salih. وَإِلَى مَدْيَنَ أَخَاهُمْ شُعِيبًا And to the people of Madian, we sent their brother, Shaib. And all of them said exactly the same, same thing. قَالَ يَا قَوْمِ اعْبُدُ اللَّهِ مَا لَكُمْ مِنْ إِلَٰهٍ غَيْرُهِ He said, O oh my people, worship Allah, there is no God for you besides Allah. What's the significance of أَخَاهُمْ يَا قَوْمِ أَخَاهُمْ يَا قَوْمِ أَخَاهُمْ يَا قَوْمِ Their brother who then said, O oh my people. Their brother meaning one of them. They knew him. They knew his lineage, his ancestry, his family, his kin. They could not doubt him. There was nothing suspicious about him. He, he wasn't a stranger. He didn't just appear all of a sudden. He didn't just rise one day and deliver something of which before, about which the people had to verify his veracity, his honesty, his integrity, his trustworthiness before they could accept the message or assess it. No, they knew them that these are the best of our people. They come from the best family, the best background, they are the best of character, they are honest, trustworthy, voracious. Therefore they could not doubt them. This was the sunnah of Allah, his tradition and pattern amongst all of his messengers, alayhim Just like the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, even before the revelation, even before he announced prophethood, even before he delivered the message to them, they regarded him as a sadiq, al-ameen, the truthful one, the trustworthy one. And I've uh, commented on this over the past few weeks, so I won't repeat myself. This is a very important point for us today too. Since, as is mentioned in the hadith related by Abu Darda and recorded by Imam Abu Dawood in his Sunan and Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal and in his Musnad and others, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says that the ulama are warathatul anbiya. The ulama, the scholars, are the successors to the prophets. They follow in the footsteps of the prophets. They are the inheritors of the treasure of the prophets. And therefore, the ulama cannot enjoy the privilege of the title of successors to the prophets and inheritors of the treasure of the prophets without the commensurate responsibilities too. They have a duty to fulfill. 
if they follow in the footsteps of the Anbiya alayhim wassalam, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if they are true, sincere ulama, ensures that they are the true successors of the Prophets and the true inheritors of the treasure of the Prophets. And the treasure of the Prophets, as the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam says, is not dinar or dirham, innama warrathul ilm. Rather, they have bequeathed the treasure of knowledge. That means the ulama follow in their footsteps. The sunnah, the pattern, and the tradition that Allah has in the messengers, Allah also has the same sunnah, tradition, and pattern amongst the ulama too. Just as the prophets of Allah were mocked and ridiculed, the ulama are mocked and ridiculed. Just as they suffered, the ulama suffer. Those who follow in the footsteps of the prophets, they also suffer. As the Prophet ﷺ says, أَشَدُّ النَّاسِ بَلَاءَ الْأَنْبِيَاءِ The people who are the most intensely tested and subjected to trials and tribulations are the Prophets of Allah. Then the best, then the best. And this is also one sunnah and tradition. That just as the ulama, just as the Prophets of Allah were known to their people, they knew them. They knew their families, they knew their background, they knew their history. So when the Anbiya rose and delivered the message of Allah, they could not question the character or the integrity and the honesty of the Anbiya They weren't strangers, similarly. It's been the pattern throughout Islam that the ulama of Allah's religion, following in the footsteps of the Anbiya are known to their people. They are one of their people. They are known to their people. The, the people know them, their families, their backgrounds, their history, their childhood, their upbringing. The community knows them. The qawm knows them. The ulama aren't those who just suddenly spring up from an obscure background, who are unknown to their people. Regardless of what they say. And it's not just about knowing the family and the ancestry, or the lineage, or the kin and clan. Rather, it's about knowing the character, the integrity, the upbringing, the whole history and experience of the ulama. They may disagree with them, but they cannot doubt their integrity and their honesty, or their sincerity and devotion. This is true for the true. This is for the true ulama of the prophets of Allah's, Allah's religion and the prophets of Allah's ummah. This is no comment on any one individual or group of individuals, one way or the other. I'm just explaining the pattern of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala in the prophets of Allah and in the successors to the prophets of Allah. I can only pray that Allah makes us amongst those who are the true followers of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and the Anbiya alayhi wasallatu wassalam. So, Heraclius said, I asked you about his lineage and you mentioned that he is a man of great lineage amongst you. And, فَكَذَلِكَ الرُّسُلْ تُبْعَثُ فِي نَسَبِ قَوْمِهَا And thus are the messengers sent amongst the best of their people. And as I mentioned, that beautiful hadith of Sahih Muslim, related by Wathilat ibn al-Asqa'a radiyallahu anhi says, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa said, 
ان الله اصطفى كنانه من ولد اسماعيل واصطفى قريشا من كنانه واصطفى من قريش بني هاشم واصطفاني من بني هاشم prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said allah selected kinanah from the children of ismail and from the children of ismail from kinanah allah selected the quraysh and from the quraysh allah selected banu hashim and from banu hashim allah selected me furthermore Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says in a hadith later by Imam Tirmidhi in his sunan and Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal in his musnad from Abu Sa'id al-Khudri radiyallahu anhu Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says ana sayyidu waladi adama yawm al-qiyamati wa la fakhr I am the master of the children of Adam on the day of resurrection and this is now boast He is the master of the whole of mankind not just the best of Banu Hashim and the best of quraish and not just the best of the children of ismail but the best of the children of adam alayhi salam the next question heraclius then said wasaltuk addressing abu sufyan through the interpreter he said wasaltuk and i asked you hal qala ahadun minkum hadha al qawl has any one of you ever claimed this claim before fadhakarta alla so you mentioned no فقلت so i said meaning heraclius says i said to myself لو, this is his analysis لو كان احد قال هذا القول قبله if anyone had made the same claim before this man لقلت then i would have surely said رجل ياتسي بقول قيل قبله this is simply a man who is imitating a claim that was made before him so this was the second question which is that tell me has anyone ever made the same claim as this man before who said the same thing so abu sufyan said no so now this is heraclius analysis that if that is the case that no man before the prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam Amongst your people ever made the same claim that this is a novel claim this is a new claim then he is not imitating someone from before he is not imitating he is not repeating rather he has come with something unique then he said wasaltuk remember heraclius was speaking about the quraish about the people of mecca of course the messages of the messengers of allah are the same they are universal but as far as the quraish was concerned the people of mecca were concerned for as long as they could remember nobody had come with the message of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam which was unique as i mentioned time and time again during the commentary over the past few weeks he he didn't just tell them that change your diet change your dress he went straight to the top he said to them abandon your gods the very gods and idols that you have been worshiping abandon them regard them as false abolish the worship of these idols and that was truly a unique message and it must have been extremely difficult for the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam 
as it would be for any man to deliver. But he was a messenger of Allah, and he delivered it. And it must have been equally difficult for such people to listen to that message. And yet many accepted that message. So it was a very unique message, and that's what Heraclius was trying to determine, that is he just following in someone else's footsteps? Is he just making the same claim? Or is this a new and unique claim? And it was a unique claim. Third question, وَسَأَلْتُكْ And I asked you, هَلْ كَانَ مِنْ آبَائِهِ مِنْ مَلِكِ Was there any king amongst his ancestors? فَذَكَرْتَ أَلَّا So you replied, no. Abu Sufyan had said, no. There is no king amongst his ancestors. I said, فَلَوْ كَانَ مِنْ آبَائِهِ مِنْ مَلِكِ I said, meaning to myself, because this is Heraclius now analyzing Abu Sufyan's answers. So he says, I said, meaning to myself, that if this man, who claims to be a prophet, had an ancestor who was a monarch, who was a king, then I would have said, قُلْتْ رَجُلٌ يَطْرُبُ مُلْكَ أَبِيهِ this is simply a man who is trying to reclaim the crown of his ancestor. And that's what would normally happen. Squabbles, political rivalries, and people contesting the crown, and this leading to battles and wars and civil wars. Traditionally, this was a lot of it was to do with who had the claim to the crown, the monarchy, the throne, and who was a pretender. So he realized that since the Prophet ﷺ had no ancestor who was a monarch, then he wasn't a pretender to a throne. The next question, was And I asked you. Remember, the Prophet ﷺ's ancestors, the Quraysh, they did not have this tradition. It was a tribal society, so they never had the tradition of being crowned rulers. They, had, they were clusters, so each clan was in an alliance with other clans as part of a tribe. The tribes were, were in an alliance with other tribes. And there were, these alliances were forever shifting. And amongst these equal clans... There was always one, or there were, there were always a few more powerful and more preeminent clans. But they were constantly shifting without any formal ceremony. Just as I mentioned, Abdul Muttalib was the most powerful during his time. Since he was the most powerful, and he was a leader and the sheikh of the Quraysh, Banu Hashim was a preeminent clan. But upon his death, without any formal ceremony or crowning, that leadership passed over to the Banu Makhzum. But again, there wasn't a dict- it wasn't some form of dictatorship. They, 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 this was a council of tribal elders. And they would honor one another. So they would gather. And in fact, it was, a very, it was quite democratic. Even though it was a tribal society, it was quite democratic. So there was no king. And that's what Abu Sufyan said, and therefore Heraclius said, that if there was a monarch or a king amongst his ancestors, I would say he is merely a pretender to the throne. So he's not... He hasn't opposed you. He hasn't raised his message in order to be your king. Rather, there's something else. Next question. And I asked you, 
هل كنتم تتهمونه بالكذب قبل أن يقول ما قال Would you ever accuse him of lying before he said what he said فذكرت الله So you mentioned that no None of them ever accused the Prophet ﷺ of lying about anything before he announced and proclaimed the message of Allah. So what's Heraclius' analysis? He says, فَقَدْ أَعْرِفْ Therefore, indeed do I know أَنَّهُ لَمْ يَكُنْ لِيَذَرَ الْكَذِبِ very insightful analysis. Listen to his words. He says, I asked you, did any of you ever accuse him of lying before he said what he said? So you said no. So he says, therefore I do know indeed that he is not one to leave lying against the people, yet lie against Allah. How can a man who for 40 years of his life, known to his people, never lie about a dinar or dirham, never lie about menial, mundane things, never lie about anything, and you have never, none of you have ever accused him of dishonesty or lying against a child, a woman, a man, an elder, or any individual, and yet at the prime age of 40, at the age of wisdom and responsibility, suddenly this man rises and makes a bold, barefaced lie and a claim against Allah. This can never happen. And I asked you. See how insightful and how precise his questions were. And I asked you. As Allah says in the Quran, O Messenger of Allah, we know indeed that what they say grieves you and it saddens you. Then Allah reassures him, فَإِنَّهُمْ لَا يُكَذِّبُونَكَ وَلَكِنَّ الظَّالِمِينَ بِآيَاتِ اللَّهِ يَجْحَدُونَ So know, O Prophet of Allah, we know, indeed, we surely know, that what they say grieves you and saddens you. But, فَإِنَّهُمْ لَا يُكَذِّبُونَكَ O Prophet of Allah, they do not belie you. وَلَكِنَّ الظَّالِمِينَ بِآيَاتِ اللَّهِ يَجْحَدُونَ Rather these sinful people, they deny the signs of Allah. So they're not rejecting you. Even Allah reassured him that they do not consider you a liar. They may accuse you of soothsaying, of madness, of sorcery, of poetry. But they do not accuse you of lying. Then, Heraclius asked him, وَسَأَلْتُكْ أَشْرَافُ النَّاسِ اتَّبَعُوهُ أَمْ ضُعَفَاؤُهُمْ Did the nobility amongst the people, did the nobles of the people follow him or their weak ones? فَذَكَرْتْ So you mentioned, أَنَّ ضُعَفَاؤُهُمْ اتَّبَعُوهُ That the 
weak of the people followed him. So this is Abu Suf- uh, this is Heraclius's analysis. وَهُمْ أَتْبَاعُ الرُّسُلِ And they, meaning the du'afa, the weak, they are the followers of the messengers. He knew that from the scriptures. He knew that from the tradition and the history of the prophets of Allah. It was always the case. Arrogance blinds a person. Arrogance clouds a person's judgment. Wealth intoxicates and corrupts. Power intoxicates and corrupts. Wealth and power make a person delusional. And in that delusion, in that confusion, in that arrogance, in that stupor and intoxication, in that inebriated state, a person can't see truth for the truth. A person can't see light for the light. A person can't distinguish. In fact, in that delusional state, a person sees truth where there is falsehood and falsehood where there is truth. As Allah testifies in the Quran. So an Allah says, I will turn away from my signs. Those who are arrogant upon the earth without just cause. Without right. Even if they see every sign, they will not believe. Rather, if they see the path of righteousness, they will not adopt that path. But if they see the path of waywardness, they will take that path. So, and there are many verses of the Qur'an that speak about that delusion of wealth. The story of the two men of Surah Al-Kahf, which I've mentioned on numerous occasions. His wealth made him delusional. And he said, مَا أَظُنُّ أَن تَبِيدَ هَذِهِ أَبَدًا I don't think all of these estates and lands and orchards and vineyards of mine and these rivers and streams that I enjoy in my lands, I do not believe any of this will perish. I.e. he believed that he was immortal and his estates and his riches and his property was everlasting. Then his delusion took him one step further. He said, and in fact, I don't believe that there is ever going to be an hour of judgment or reckoning. The world won't come to an end. But if it does, I don't think there will be any resurrection or reckoning. Then his delusion to him further. Let's presume that there is a reckoning. Life will come to an end. There is a day of resurrection and reckoning. Then, if, if, he says, if ever I am returned to my Lord, then there I shall enjoy a greater return by him. Meaning, he will give me more there than he has given me here. So, this is delusion. And it leads a person to imagine and to believe in one's immortality. وَيْلٌ لِكُلِّ هُمَزَةٍ لُمَزَةٍ الَّذِي جَمَعَ مَالًا وَعَدَّدَةٍ يَحْسَبُ أَنَّ مَالَهُ أَخْلَدَةٍ Woe be unto every slandering defamer who accumulates wealth وَعَدَّدَةٍ and counts it forever counting it 
He thinks that his wealth will give him everlasting life. He thinks that his wealth will make him immortal. That's what wealth does. That's what power does. But those who are poor, those who are powerless, those who are weak and meek, they are normally humble. Humility creates simplicity in a person and clarity instead of confusion. It creates an open mind and an open heart. And it maintains the beauty of one's character. One's judgment isn't clouded. The most charitable people are the most poor. The poorest are the most charitable. The weak, the meek, the humble. They are the ones beloved to others. And they are the ones beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As I mentioned in the hadith later by Imam Bukhari, rahmatullahi alayhi, Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was seated with some companions. Someone walked past. So he asked the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, what do you say of this man? So the Sahaba said, Ya Rasulullah, a man who is a noble, a man, I'm paraphrasing, a man who if he asks for someone's hand in marriage, he will be married. A man, if he asks for something, he will not be refused because of his wealth. And position. Another man walked past, a humble one. Prophet said, What do you think of this man? They said, Ya Rasulullah, a man who is not regarded as being one of great worth, who is looked down upon by others. A man, if he asks for someone's hand in marriage, he would be rejected. A man, if he asks for something, his request will be turned down. Prophet ﷺ said, A world, f-, he said, this man, the second one, is better than a world full of the first one. Allah loves those who are humble. And this is the reason why all the Prophets of Allah والسلام, their, their followers were the meek, the weak, the poor, the humble. And that's why they even said to one of the Prophets of Allah والسلام, the Prophet Nuh and we do not see, except that those who have followed you. We do not see that anyone has followed you except the worthless and the lowly ones amongst us. Very interesting verse. At the first instance. Meaning, these are simple folk. They are humble, they are weak, they are powerless, positionless. They enjoy no prestige, no position. We do not regard them as anything. They're worthless in our eyes. And they are so simple, they're simpletons. That you, at the first instance, meaning, at the first instant, you delivered the message to them and they accepted. 
You delivered the message to them, they accepted. You spoke to them, they accepted. So what the powerful and the elite were trying to suggest is that we are intelligent, we are wise, we are cultivated and cultured. We know. These are simple folk. They are the riffraff. So they don't understand. You delivered your simple message to them and these simpletons accepted and just followed you. Badi al-ra'i. But the word Badi al-ra'i is not a taunt. They regarded it as a jibe and taunt. But in the case of the believers, it wasn't a taunt. Why wasn't it a taunt? Exactly as I've described. Because of their simplicity, their meekness, their minds were clear, their hearts were clear. When the messengers of Allah first spoke, these people's clear hearts and minds instantly recognized the truth and saw the light. So they, they believed instantly, at the first instant. Others regarded them as simpletons, but they weren't simpletons. And what the elite and the nobility thought of as being cultivated, cultured, intelligent, understanding, that was no wisdom or understanding. Rather, that was their delusion and their confusion and their clouded judgment because of their arrogance. So this is the history of all the prophets, alayhim salatu wassalam. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said in many different places that the weak were the followers of the prophets and the arrogant were the rejectors of the prophets. I've covered this in some detail earlier on as well as in my talk about arrogance. So do refer to that, the one I gave a few weeks ago. Next question. وَسَأَلْتُكْ And I asked you, أَيَزِيدُونَ أَمْ يَنْقُصُونَ Do they increase in number? Or do they decrease? فَذَكَرْتْ So you mentioned, أَنَّهُمْ يَزِيدُونَ That they increase. Now, despite all the difficulties, the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, surely but slowly, in Mecca, they were increasing in number. وَكَذَلِكَ أَمْرُ الْإِيمَانِ حَتَّى يَتِمُ Even Heraclius says, and this is the case with Iman. This is the case with faith until it reaches its completion. I.e., the faith of the messengers alayhimu salatu wassalam. The faith, the faith meaning the religion of the messengers alayhimu salatu wassalam. The followers of the messengers alayhimu salatu wassalam. They are forever on the increase, slowly but surely. Until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala completes the message of each of these messengers. And that was the case with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. There were a handful of believers in Mecca al-Mukarramah. Despite all the odds, despite all the persecution. And even now we witness the miracle of faith. And I'll explain this more in a moment. Continues to increase. وَسَأَلْتُكْ And then I asked you, next question. أَيَرْتَدُّ أَحَدٌ سَخْطَةً لِدِينِهِ بَعْدَ أَنْ يَدْخُلَ فِيهِ And I asked you, does any one of them, meaning the followers, apostate from his religion after embracing it, after entering into it, 
فَذَكَرْتَ أَلَّا So you mentioned now. And indeed, the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum in Makkah al-Mukarramah, even before the hijrah, despite all the persecution, the torture, even murder, all the pressure and imprisonment, they would not apostate from their religion. Look at Sayyidina Bilal ibn Rabah radiyallahu anhum. Under torture, he refused to utter a single word to please the enemy. Under immense torture. Khabbab ibn al-Arat radiyallahu anhu, he once removed his shirt in Medina when Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu anhu saw his back. That warrior of a man, Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu anhu, broke down into tears. Because his whole back was marked with crisscrosses of lashes. Years later, the marks had not gone. And that was under torture. And that was the case with so many of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. But none of them became disillusioned. I related the story of Ammar ibn Yasir radiallahu anhu. If anyone was to be disillusioned, it would be Ammar ibn Yasir radiallahu anhu. He witnessed his mother, Sumiya radiallahu anha, being killed and martyred. He witnessed his father being tortured. His mother being tortured, his mother, father being tortured, and eventually dying as a result of that torture. And he himself was tortured terribly. And he was forced to utter a word, which he immediately regretted. And a person says anything under torture. He denounced his religion under torture. But instantly, when he was released, he repented, he wept. He sought the forgiveness of Allah. He sought the forgiveness of the companions. He wanted to seek the forgiveness of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam, but he could not face him. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knew that he had uttered a single word under torture. However, his heart remained clear and firm on belief. Allah actually exonerated him. Allah excused him. And about him did Allah reveal the verse, إِلَّا مَنْ وَقَلْبُهُ مُطْمَئِنٌ بِالْإِيمَانِ Except for one who is compelled, but his heart is content with iman and faith. And that was Ammar ibn Yasir radiallahu anhu. Under immense torture, he experienced all of that. Why would Ammar ibn Yasir radiallahu anhu and others like him what need was there for them to tolerate such abuse, torture, even murder, such wanton killing? Wouldn't it have been easier for them to even be neutral? They could have said, we are neither with the Quraysh, nor are we with the Muslims. We remain neutral. We're just not involved. It would, they would have saved their lives, their property. They would have saved themselves, their skin. But what led them to this belief? And after that belief, what led them to remaining steadfast? So much so that Ammar ibn Yasir radiallahu anhu, he suffered in Mecca, even in, after the hijrah. And as I mentioned, whilst he was building the masjid, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was wiping and dusting the dust off his body. And whilst he was doing it, he would say to him, Woe be unto you, O Ammar, how will it be when the rebel force shall kill you? He's predicting his death. This is a man who's seen torture and death all his life. And now, having witnessed his father and mother dying, the same Prophet of Allah 
is prophesizing his own death and saying to him, how will it be with you when the rebel force shall kill you? Couldn't he have said that all, one could argue, a cynic would say, that for Ammar ibn Yasir, religion brought him nothing but death. And the prophet is prophesizing further his own death. Yet Ammar ibn Yasir radiallahu anhu, he believed in the words of the messenger of Allah. And it did not shake him or change him in any way. Rather, as Allah says in Surah Al-Ahzab, when the believers saw what the allied forces of the Quraysh brought against them in the fifth year of Hijrah, in the Battle of the Trench, they said, هَذَا مَا وَعَدَنَ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ وَصَدَقَ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ وَمَا زَادُهُمْ إِلَّا إِيمَانًا وَتَسْلِيمًا This is what Allah and His Messenger promised. And Allah and His Messenger, Allah and His Messenger spoke the truth. And this whole experience... It did not increase them except in faith and in submission. That's iman is something which we cannot understand. It's unique. And even Heraclius knew that. Therefore listen to his uh, analysis. Despite everything they faced, they did not turn away or apostate from their religion. Out of disillusionment, there were some cases of apostasy. But many... Uh, but Virtually every one of them was to do with either greed or to save oneself. Or for personal reasons. Never because of disillusionment. And that's why he specifically asked that did any, do any of them apostate from their religion and turn away after embracing it? Not for any other reason but out of disillusionment out of disenchantment with this religion, Abu Sufyan said no. Listen to the analysis of Heraclius. He says, وَكَذَلِكَ الْإِيمَانِ And such is faith, حِينَ تُخَالِطُ بَشَاشَطُهُ الْقُلُوبِ When its radiance merges with the hearts. That's Heraclius' analysis. That such is faith, when its delight and its radiance merges and mingles with the hearts. Even Heraclius understood that when faith, when Iman creeps into a person's heart, it's mysterious and at the same time miraculous. It's unshakable faith. It merges with the heart. A person tastes the sweetness of Iman. And we see that today, even now. There are many, despite all the Hostility. There are many who look into Islam, who read about Islam, who are introduced to Islam, and they embrace. And when they embrace, they remain firm on their religion. And people just cannot understand their conversion. People cannot understand their reason, this sudden change and this drastic and dramatic change from one person to another. Their parents could not change them. Their families could not change them. But the words of the Prophet of Allah have changed them. The words of the Quran in a language that they do not understand have changed them. And changed them in such a way that they themselves become a force of change for others. 
And this is how the Sahaba radiallahu anhum were. Before they embraced Islam. They led lives which would be anathema to those who have not known that life. Yet Allahu Akbar, when they embraced Islam, when they followed the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made them the leaders of creation after the Anbiya alayhi wasallatu wasallam. They are the best of the best, the elite of the elites, the best of Allah's creation. That's what Iman does. It's mysterious and it's miraculous. Miraculous. And even Heraclius understood that. That's why he says, and such is Iman, such is faith, when its radiance merges and mingles with the hearts. Next question, and I asked you, هَلْ Does he deceive, meaning the Prophet of Allah? فَذَكَرْتَ Allah. So you mentioned no. And do you remember what word Abu Sufyan slipped in? When Heraclius asked him that, does this Prophet deceive? So he said, no, he doesn't deceive. But... At the moment, we are in a period of truce with him. But we do not know what he's going to do in this truce. Will he deceive or not? And then Abu Sufyan added that I was unable to insert or interpolate, well, I was unable to insert a single word against the Prophet of Allah in my entire conversation with Heraclius except this one word. He managed to slip slip it in, plant the seed of doubt that he hasn't deceived us yet. But we are in a truce with him now, so we do not know whether he will deceive us. We don't know what he will do. But Heraclius was intelligent enough to overlook that and to ignore it. He ignored it completely. And that's why he doesn't repeat it here. He simply says, And I asked you, Does he deceive? So you said no. So his analysis was, and such are the messengers, they do not deceive. وَسَأَلْتُكْ Next question. And then I asked you, بِمَا يَأْمُرُكُمْ What does he instruct you to do? فَذَكَرْتْ So you mentioned, أَنَّهُ يَأْمُرُكُمْ أَن تَعْبُدُوا اللَّهَ وَلَا تُشْرِكُوا بِهِ شَيْئًا You mentioned that he instructs you that worship Allah and do not associate anything with him in partnership. وَيَنْهَاكُمْ عَنْ عِبَادَةِ الْأَوْثَانِ And he prevents you from the worship of idols. Abu Sufyan never actually said those words. That he prevents you from the worship of idols. But Heraclius is providing that analysis himself. That this is the meaning of عُبُدُ اللَّهِ وَحْدَهُ وَلَا تُشْرِكُوا بِهِ شَيْئًا That worship Allah alone and do not associate any partner or anything in partnership with him. Heraclius' own interpretation of that is that he prevents you from the worship of idols. And he instructs you to prayer, and to truthfulness, and to abstention from anything which is deplorable, which is forbidden, which is undignified. That's the interpretation I gave you last week. Otherwise the words are and abstention. He commands you to remain abstemious, to remain 
to refrain. Refrain from what? To refrain from forbidden things, unlawful things, and undignified things. Sometimes a thing can be permissible, but it's undignified. And a true believer is someone who abstains from everything which is not only unlawful, which is also undignified. Here, Heraclius ends his analysis. Now, he also says, it's not mentioned here, but in another narration of this hadith, he adds that this is what he commands you to do. That he commands you to prayer, to charity, to truthfulness, and to abstention. So he adds in another narration of Bukhari itself, وَهَذِهِ صِفَةُ النَّبِيِّ that this is the character, or this is the quality of a prophet. This is what prophets do. This is what they advise their followers to do. The tenth question is missing. One of the questions is missing. The analysis. But it's, it's mentioned in other narrations. It's just missing in this one narration. Otherwise, in Bukhari, it's to be found elsewhere. And what was that? Remember he asked him the question that, have you ever fought with him? So he said, yes. So he said, how is the battle between you? So he said, the battle is alternating. Al-harbu sijal. It's alternating. So he says, and I asked you about your battles with him. So you said you have fought him, and your wars and are, your battles are alternating. And this is the case with the prophets of Allah. Heraclius says, this is the case with the messengers. That sometimes they score victories, sometimes victories are scored against them. But, but... He says, the end result and the final consequence is for the prophets of Allah. Just as Allah says in the Quran, كَتَبَ اللَّهُ لَأَغْلِبَنَّ أَنَا وَرُسُولِي إِنَّ اللَّهَ قَوِيٌّ عَزِيزٌ Allah has decreed that I and my messengers shall prevail. Verily, Allah is all-powerful, almighty. After having ended his inter- interrogation and his analysis, what does Heraclius say after all of that? And remember... This is taking place in a royal court, surrounded by his dignitaries, his viziers, his ministers, his generals. And he's at the height of his power. Heraclius, the Roman emperor, he says, فَإِنْ كَانَ مَا تَقُولُ حَقًّا So if what you say is true, فَسَيَمْلِكُ مَوْضِعَ قَدَمَيَّ هَاتَيْنِ Then he shall soon possess the place beneath my feet. Because he knew this is a messenger of Allah. And being the messenger of Allah, everything that he has just analyzed will prove to be true. And Allah's promise to him will prove to be true as it was true to the messengers of yore. So he says, he will possess this land beneath my feet. Further he adds, Allahu Akbar. And this was who? Heraclius, the Byzantine Roman emperor who had just scored a decisive victory over the Sasanid Persian Empire and was now at the height of his power and he was the emperor of the reigning superpower of the time. He says, وَقَدْ كُنْتُ أَعْلَمْ أَنَّهُ خَارِجٌ And I knew that the Prophet was about to emerge. لم أكن أظن أنه منكم But I did not think that he was one of you. فلو أني أعلم So therefore, if I do know أني أخلص إليه That I can reach him safely 
that the jashamtu liqa'ah, then I will venture to meet him. Walau kuntu indah, and if I am by him, lagasaltu an qadamay, then I shall wash his feet. And in one narration of this hadith by Tabarani, he says, I shall kiss his forehead and wash his feet. Because he knew he was a messenger of Allah. And the Heraclius, a Byzantine Roman emperor, says that I will go to him. How? In humility. I will go to him not as a king, but as a follower. To believe in him. To kiss his forehead. To submit before him. And to humbly wash his feet. How many of us have washed the feet of our fathers or mothers? A simple question. For everything that our parents have done for us, who of us has served them humbly with love and devotion, even as an act of kindness, in their old age, in their senior age, to take their feet and to wash them. We are rapidly losing that humility and that respect. And of course there is no comparison between parents and the Messenger of Allah. But the the analogy I'm trying to draw is that we as children, some, some of us as children cannot bring ourselves to do that or have never bothered or never thought of doing that. Here is the most powerful ruler of the known world saying in an instant that if I can reach him, I will venture to meet him, I will kiss his forehead and I will wash his feet. ثم دعا بكتاب رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم الذي بعث به مع دحية إلى عظيم بصرى فدفعه إلى هرقل فقرأه. Then Heraclius called for, summoned the letter which he had read before. You see, he did all of this for a certain reason. He had already read the letter of the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم and he had put it aside. And this is what led him to interrogating Abu Sufyan in that manner. Then when all his courtiers, his generals, his dignitaries and his most powerful politicians and the patricians and the patriarchs of the Roman Empire, when they had heard this whole conversation and its analysis, he then, in a dramatic fashion, called for the letter of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. All of this shows that he knew that the Prophet of Allah was a true messenger. And not only that, but he wanted to believe. He wanted to embrace. He then called for the letter of the Messenger Dihya, which he had sent and dispatched with Dihya to the governor, or not to the governor, but to the ruler of Basra. This is Basra. Basra is Bostra. This was one of these trading cities between Medina and Damascus. It was was a great famous city at the time. Um, This was mainly occupied by the 
Ghassanid Arabs, not by the Byzantine Romans themselves, but the Ghassanid Arabs. So he sent it to the ruler of Basra. And this is not the Basra of Iraq. This is the Basra of Syria. So he sent it to the ruler of Basra. He then dispatched that letter to the to Heraclius, the Roman emperor, for the Fa'ahu ila Heraclius, which he then forwarded to Heraclius. Then Heraclius read it out, meaning he had it publicly read out. Remember, Abu Sufyan had no knowledge of this letter. He didn't know that Heraclius had already received a letter. And he had already read it, and he was aware of its content. For Abu Sufyan, who still was an unbeliever at the time, this was something new. He's just describing what happened after our interrogation. He called for the letter, and then he read out the letter, and this was the, these were the contents of the letter. And the very beautiful... We don't have time to go into detail. I'll end here. But I'll just read the letter and translate it. And we'll end with that. And I'll comment on it next week in detail, inshallah. So the content of the letter was thus. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. By the name of Allah, the most gracious, the most merciful. Min Muhammadin abdillahi wa rasulih. From Muhammad, the servant of Allah and his messenger. Ila hirakl azimir rum to Heraclius the ruler of the Romans. Salamun ala man al-huda. Peace be upon one who follows the guidance. Amma ba'd. Following this, فَإِنِّي أَدْعُوكَ بِدِعَايَةِ الْإِسْلَامِ Therefore, so, I invite you with the call of Islam. Aslim, taslim. Become a Muslim, you shall be safe. يُؤْتِكَ اللَّهُ أَجْرَكَ مَرَّتَيْنِ Allah will grant you your reward twice. فَإِن تَوَلَّيْتَ But if you turn away, فَإِنَّ عَلَيْكَ إِثْمَ الْأَرِيسِيِّينَ Then upon you shall befall the sin of the commoners. And, يَا أَهْلَ الْكِتَابِ O people of the book, تَعَالَوْا إِلَى كَلِمَةٍ Come to a word, سَوَاءٍ بَيْنَنَا وَبَيْنَكُمْ Equal between us and you. أَلَّا نَعْبُدَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ that we shall not worship anyone but Allah, and that we shall not associate anything with him in partnership, and that we, we shall not take each other as lords besides Allah. But if you turn away, then say to them that you bear witness that we are Muslims. That's a letter. And then, Hadith continues. Inshallah, I'll comment on the letter from the beginning next week. Maybe we are unable to appreciate the eloquence, but Allahu Akbar. These words, the Arabic, the rhythm, the rhyme, the sequence, the order, the precision, the succinct nature of the words, only a messenger of Allah could utter such words. Each word, is impregnated with meaning. Every single word. And the style, the delivery. This was the Prophet ﷺ writing from Medina. In a period of truce. Still confined to the city of Medina in terms of power. Not still having conquered Mecca. 
having experienced the battle of the trench, in which some would argue was a stalemate. There was no victory. And yet he is writing a letter to the mightiest ruler at the time. And he begins with the words, مِن مُحَمَّدٍ عَبْدِ اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ From Muhammad, the servant of Allah, and his messenger, إِلَى هِرَقْلِ عَظِيمِ الرُّومِ to Heraclius, the great one of the Romans. He does not address him as king. He does not address him as emperor. He just says a ruler. And he, the messenger of Allah, is telling the mightiest ruler at the time, Aslim Daslam. Become a Muslim, you shall be safe. Aslim Daslam. The words are beautiful. I end with this. This is true for all the messengers of Allah, they were very eloquent. I'll elaborate on this next week, inshallah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enable us to understand the words of Allah and His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala abdihi wa rasulihi nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Nashadu wa la ilaha illa ant. Astaghfiruka wa natubu alayk. This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadhul Haq and has been brought to you by Alkotha Productions. For additional lectures and products, please visit www.akstore.com. We can also be contacted by phone on 0044-121-771-3777 or by email via sales at akstore.com. Produced under license by Alkotha Productions, all rights reserved for Alcotha Productions and the author. Any unauthorized distribution, broadcasting, or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright.